Well, it's wonderful to be here. I want to start off by thanking Jyotish and Davy so much for the amazing beginning to the week and uh, just giving us the reminder, the strong encouragement that consciousness is everything. How we change our consciousness will depend on what our life is, and we can do anything with our consciousness. This week is transforming your life through meditation, and in the later parts, tomorrow and the next day, we'll talk about the aspects of life that are a little bit more daily life, your your work, your health, your um, relationships. Today we're talking about uh, what's a little bit more close to home, your, your actual consciousness, your cho- how you make choices, your thoughts, your habits. And yesterday we got just a really wonderful orientation to how important meditation is. And it was global and it was huge and it was very, very motivating. And today I want to make that a little more personal. We all know now that meditation is really um, highly prized in, in almost every field. We're hearing about athletes and business people and school children whose lives are being transformed by meditation. And meditation has become so valuable that now it can be added to the list of things that we feel guilty about. (laughs) We're not exercising enough. We're not eating enough vegetables. We're eating too many sweets. And now we're also not meditating enough, or we're not meditating at all. And that's a very unfortunate thing, because on the one hand, we don't, maybe not getting as much benefit from our meditation as we would like to, but on the other hand, Now we're making it worse by feeling guilty about it. So I wanted to address that a little bit this morning because I think it's important. I think even people, there are people, I've worked here at the Expanding Light a long time, and I've talked to many people and I say, you know, how is your, you know, are you meditating or how are you meditating? And they go, well, it's on and off, you know, some some months, yes, some years, no, some, you know, just... (laughs) It's on and off, and it's a very real thing. So I'm, I'm, I think we need to just take a little look at that. And I also know for Kriyabans, it can be challenging. We, we're encouraged to have a twice-daily practice. I was giving a retreat in the Midwest, and I was asking about their Kriya practice, and a number of people said, well, I practice on the weekends. So this is, you know, this is the way life is. This is a very, very busy time we're in. And so I want to address that a little bit to see if we can, on a way, lighten it and at the same time make us a real motivation for us. Um, It was Swamiji who used to teach meditation by saying, in the beginning, meditate only as long as you're enjoying it. Excuse me. But I was very touched one time when he said, but the truth is, in the beginning of meditation, you're not enjoying it that much. And that is the truth. We have habits of looking outward. We have habits of restless thinking. And now we're trying to teach our mind to go inward and upward. And it doesn't always respond with a lot of enthusiasm. It can be challenging. And I wanted to share with you the story that to me is one of the most clarifying and motivating stories I know about meditation. It was told by our friend Naya Swami Jaya, 
And Jaya, as most of us know, is a very deep and devoted meditator, meditating I don't know how many hours a day, and also an inspiration uh, on meditation, uh, traveling around the world, sharing meditation with people. Well, he first started his meditation uh, practice with Swami Kriyananda in the Bay Area, taking a class in meditation. At the end of the first class, Swami said, go home and practice 30 minutes. Maybe he said 30 minutes twice a day. And in the 60s, we're a little bit more uh, holding up the bar a little higher. He might have said 30 minutes twice a day, or, or at least 30 minutes a day. Well, the second week, Jaya came back to class and he said, Swamiji, I can't meditate 30 minutes a day. I'm way too restless. And Swamiji said, that's fine. Meditate 20 minutes a day. And Jaya said, I can't meditate 20 minutes a day. I'm way too restless. And Swamiji said, fine, we'll meditate 15 minutes a day. And then when Jaya said Swamiji, he just cut the conversation. He could tell what was going to come next. And he just said, tell me, what can you do? Now, this is a very, very good story on a lot of levels. Because here's somebody, and so what the answer was, Jaya said, I think I can meditate five minutes a day. Swamiji said, wonderful. Do that, five minutes a day. So the two parts of this story that are so important is here's someone who could barely squeak by with five minutes a day who went on to develop a very deep, lifelong, decades-long, daily, twice-daily practice of meditation. So it holds out hope for everyone, Okay. But the other thing that's so beautiful about it is Swami's response. He didn't say, well, try harder or, you know, or that's not good enough. He just said, what can you do? So it doesn't matter what everybody else is doing. It doesn't matter what you think you should do. It doesn't matter. None of that matters. What matters is what can you do? And just to do that. So wanting to encourage us to move in that direction with our meditation. But also, some of us who do have a lifelong practice of meditation, twice-a-day practice of meditation, we know, even as committed as we are to meditation, that there are a lot of meditations that are um, still restless, or sleepy, or dull, and you're just you're fighting uphill, and you're using your techniques, and you're using your devotion, and you're just doing everything you can to lift your consciousness, but it's actually working. It's not just sitting back and waiting for the bliss to pour over you. It's it's work. And yet, interspersed with those meditations, maybe they go for a day, maybe they go for months of challenging meditations, interspersed with them, God will send a meditation where you feel, and I know anyone with a practice has experienced this, you feel so much love or so much joy or such a transformational calmness that you just think, I don't care what it takes. I'll, I'll do years of dull meditations just for one meditation like that. And so we have those two things going on. And the temptation is to think, you know, why don't I skip the meditations where they're just so restless and it's 
pointless to be there, and I'm just going to stick with those really nice communing with God meditations. And it reminded me of a story that I heard about a young man who went to apply for a job. And he was interviewing with the boss, and the boss said, well, I think you're the fellow for the job. Come, come in on Monday, and you'll start at $500 a week. After six months, you'll go to $1,000 a week. What do you think? And the young man said, terrific. I'll come back in six months. <laughs> so it says, <laughs> do you see the parallel? <laughs> do you see how it's ridiculous to think you're going to get the $1,000 just for showing up? It's ridiculous to think that God is going to shower you with just this divine bliss just because you want it. Those, those meditations that are the uphill struggle are where we are developing our inner strength. We're developing our devotion. When we're receiving love, we're, we're just receiving it. When we're, when we're doing those difficult meditations, we're giving it. And it's so important that we have those ones where we're um, working on ourselves. Not, we're not just coasting downhill with our hands in the arms and, and just enjoying the ride. We're, we're actually working on it, and we're developing our muscles. So don't think that the times that you sit there and just go, I, I don't think I said Hong Sa more than one time. It doesn't matter. You were, I say this from personal experience, <laughs> you are working and that's really, really important. So during this week, this would be a good time to say, okay, what can I do? I'm going to be so filled with inspiration during this week. I'm going to go home and I'm just going to, you all know the basics. You know how to create a habit. The most important thing is habit. That's really what it takes. Get the habit going. Don't question it. What can I do to create a habit? Five minutes. You know, one of my friends here at Ananda, when she took her first meditation class, she was, had an extremely busy job. She said, I can't commit to five minutes of meditation a day but I can commit to two minutes of meditation a day. Two minutes. She's now practicing the higher Kriyas twice a day, devoted practice. So start where you are. It doesn't matter. Just do it. That's it. But also, just to kind of round out the picture, again, I'm trying to alleviate the sense of should. Um, I was talking um, a week or two ago with a friend who has come to the expanding light over the last 10 years or so, and we know each other well. And she's very, very devoted. She's a Kriyaban. She's very devoted to Master. She's a therapist. And in her practice, she sees, I don't know how many people a day, but all during her practice, she's praying. She's praying for guidance. She's sharing the guidance. She's watching it change their lives. She's offering her gratitude for that guidance. And that's what her day is like. Well, I know she's had trouble establishing a sitting practice and, you know, she gets one going and then gets too busy or something else happens or she gets sick or whatever. And so this time when she was here, she likes to have like a little counseling session in addition to just hanging out a little bit. She said, well, you know, I said, things seem to be going well. She said, yes, but you know, I still don't have a practice. I said, don't say that. Don't say that. You have a practice of thinking of Master all day long, every day. 
of praying to him, of receiving his guidance. That's a practice. Now we just have to figure out how we're going to get you sitting still and also doing a silent meditation. But I think we have to realize that if we are lifelong meditators, the hours that we spend or the minutes that we spend in our sitting still practice are just part of a, of a relationship. We have an ongoing relationship with God that is happening all the time. When we're driving the car, when we're walking uh, through the halls at work and we're just remembering to come back to center, when we're remembering to be kind when we don't feel like being kind. One of my friends recently was talking about um, being at work and, and she got angry at another person there. And then she said, and then I remembered to see that she was master. And then it was all fine. Okay, that's a lifelong practice. That's a practice. We have to do the both. Sitting is what feeds that inspiration. But that inspiration is very real and very, very important. And we want to keep that going too. So this encouragement uh, for meditation, I just wanted to share that. Um, I Again, I wanted to... Uh, yesterday, Joe Tish gave us a, a, so a wonderful overview of how we can keep our practice going with things like practicing the presence of God, um, japa, chanting, all the things we know to keep that relationship going. But I've been thinking about three that are sort of not in that level of category, but they are worth talking about. Um, I've been thinking about a word that I think we need to eliminate <clears throat> eliminate from our lives. <clears throat> and I don't think you're going to be able to guess what it is. It's a pretty benign word. It's a um, conjunction. I think it's a conjunction. Uh, and the word is because. Because. Now, because can be fairly harmless, but it can also appear in sentences like, I am angry because. I don't like this person because. I can't do that because. And when it's used in this way, suddenly because is now the introduction to a story on why I can't keep my consciousness high. What I'm getting into now, I realized I didn't introduce it, but we're talking about in today's class about um, we're building on the idea of meditation, but then how do we make choices, habits, thoughts that enhance our meditation? <clears throat> and how is our meditation enhancing those? So looking at this word because, <clears throat> it can be a deadly word. Because it tells you... <laughs> not always, not always. It, it signals to you the fact that your current consciousness is fine just the way it is because something else is making it be that way. So you don't have to do anything about the fact that you're angry or you can't do that or you don't like that person. But if we eliminate the word because, suddenly we say, I'm angry. Okay, that's not going to be okay for us because we're people who are seeking higher consciousness. We're going to have to do something about that. I don't like that person. Oh, I better change my consciousness. 
I can't just say I don't like them because they were mean to me, they rear-ended my car, whatever they did to you, you can't go there. You just have to say, I don't like that person, therefore I need to change my consciousness. And I want to share a story that taught me this in a very beautiful way, and it's a valuable story. This happened some years ago in the community. I have a friend, but I noticed that this friend... Over the years, whenever we were in sort of little groups of people, would be talking to everyone else, but they would never be talking to me. And so I thought, they don't talk to me because they don't think that I'm worth talking to or I'm I'm, uh, worthy enough or whatever. I had a little story of why they didn't talk to me, and thanks to the story, I was annoyed about that. (laughs) And so I did what I highly recommend that we all do, and I think most of us do, when you feel out of connection, you take it into your meditation, at the end of your meditation, you hold that person in the light. And so I was doing that for quite a while, but I was doing it, and again, this is not an unfamiliar thing to do. Why was I doing it? So that they would change. (laughs) Of course. Of course. Um, If I hold them in light long enough, it will all be well. But that wasn't happening. And so something, you know, I I maintained my annoyance and I continued to hold them in light at the end of meditation. So, I mean, I wasn't stopping. I I just was at a stalemate, so to speak. And one morning I was doing my thing of after meditation, holding them in the light and because I, and, and uh, whatever, I was doing that. And so, it's, I said it's not always a bad word. Anyway, the fact that I was doing that, I suddenly got this feeling inside myself that said, how do you treat that person? Are you friendly to them? Are you talking to them? Well, no, I wasn't. I'd sort of... I kind of wrote that off a long time ago. Well, they don't talk to me because they don't like me. Therefore, I'll just pray for them. (laughs) And so I realized there was a lack. And the lack wasn't in them. The lack was in me. And so I thought of this person. And I began to, sitting in my meditation room, think of them as my pal, my best pal, bathing them in appreciation, love, friendship, good humor, just good energy, just like you would feel toward any friend. And so I ended my meditation. I felt very good, very happy. I felt much better inside myself. And I came over to the expanding light where Swamiji was giving a, um, a, a some kind of a satsang or Sunday service. And so the dining room was a little bit filled waiting with people waiting around to go into that satsang. And this person walks into the dining room from way across the room, walks right over to me, and starts talking to me for 20 minutes. And I thought, I think Master is trying to tell me something here. It's not out there. I mean, Jyotish gave a very dramatic example of the woman who had cancer, and she changed her consciousness, and the cancer was gone. Well, this is much more close to home. If we've got something that's not working... How can we change our consciousness so that we are ready 
for something different to happen. Another friend told me a story that's similar but different but valuable. She, One of the guests here said that she had a, abandon, sort of an abandonment issue from childhood. And she found that in whatever circumstance she was, she never quite felt she belonged. She always felt like a little bit of an outsider, and she never could figure out how to deal with that. And she went to the Moksha Mandir and was meditating there, and she felt that Swami Kriyananda healed her of that issue from her past. And the amazing thing was that when she went out and she started talking to people, they started talking to her, Nothing outwardly had changed in her circumstances except her consciousness, and it was different. So this is where we're working all day long. So I know it happens throughout the day. One little thing comes along, oh, you're frustrated, oh, your feelings are hurt, oh, you're confused, oh, you're fearful, whatever it is, it's just consciousness, And we just want to say, what can I do now to lift my consciousness? Not to expect that the world around is going to change, but that you can change. And if you change, everything else changes. Well, there's another, sort of another editorial thing we can do uh, in our, with our consciousness. And basically that has to do with editing our thoughts Swami Kriyananda talked about, as many of you know, he, he wrote about 150 books, and he edited them, edited them tirelessly again and again and again. And what he said is, he said, I look at every word, and every word has to justify its existence. Is this word necessary? Is it the right tone? Is it the right vibration? Does it create the right setting? Is there a better word? Is this the best thing? Does it, should it be here? Well, I think we could do the same thing with our thoughts. How many of our thoughts really shouldn't be there? You know, they have to do with somebody else's life. They have to do with something that makes you feel, feel fearful or, or worried or angry. They take you out of connecting upward. In uh, the autobiography, what is it that Sri Yukteswar says? What more, basically, what more powerful words are there than just simply God is? Nay, God, just the word God, that in itself. Is this taking me in the direction of God? So we want to take a look at what's in there and say, is this thought justified? There's a little mark you use when you're editing with pencil, and it goes like this. And I just had one of those thoughts this morning, and I just went, take it away. Not necessary. Um, There is a woman in our community who had a a rather um, dramatic experience of this. She um, is a mother of two teenage daughters, and she had a very rough marriage, and so they had a very rough upbringing. And meanwhile, in the course of all of this, she got onto the path very, very devotedly, very devoted to Master, um, meditating on him and talking with him and, and taking her 
heart to him in a beautiful way. Well, her daughters, when they were in junior, uh, junior year in high school, the toll of their earlier lives began to weigh on them, and uh, they weren't going to school. One of them was ridden with anxiety. She couldn't, she couldn't leave the room, basically. She was so anxious. Her twin sister was regularly committing suicide. I mean, and not obviously successfully, but, but uh, they were taking you know, trips to the emergency room because of the suicidal behavior. So she had a situation that just hearing about it uh, and not being a parent, I mean, I would be racked with fear. I can't imagine it. And I know, I don't know what uh, actual child raising people would say about this. I know a lot of parents would respond with fear and would start trying to control the situation. Okay, I'm taking away your cell phone. If you don't, you know, you have to go to school. You have to take this medication. You have to see the doctor. You have to go to a therapist. You have to do all these things, or you can't, you know, and start trying to use the power position to make something happen because they were so afraid. And I'm not, I'm not criticizing that at all. I don't know what I would do. But what this woman did was extraordinary. She was, went to her altar, and she felt Master saying to her, you cannot take your fear to those children. You have to leave your fear with me at the altar. For those children, you have to give them only love, only your unconditional support, whatever they want to do. You can't decide what they want to do. You have to honor the fact that they are 16 or 17 years old and they've, you know, they have a lot of um, maturity behind what they're doing. You have to honor that. You have to give them love. You have to give them support and no fear. Fear must be left at the altar. And I'm sure she must have spent a lot of time at that altar, but she also followed the instructions and she just gave those kids love okay, what do you want for lunch? Okay, what do you want for dinner? Did everything she could to keep them supported. And they ended up, she researched how to make up your, you know, schooling. And when she just, she stuck with them. She gave them love. She had solutions for them when they were ready. They ended up finishing high school, going on to college, studying pre-med. They're both interested in working with people who have the conditions that they have. And they're very happy. They're very, uh, they love their mother. And um, it, it turned out amazingly well. But it came from the willingness to say, I, just because a thought is in my head, doesn't mean it's supposed to be there. I need to get rid of some of those thoughts and say, is this a thought that is helping me lift my consciousness, is helping me feel more courageous, more loving, more joyful, more positive about life, or is it not? And if it's not, it's got to go. So the last quality I think can be helpful in this idea of what is my part? Meditation is part of it, but what is my part in daily life? What do I need to work on? Is something that uh, is in the Bhagavad Gita. Many of us are familiar with this part of the Bhagavad Gita. Um, 
the story of Arjuna, who is the supreme disciple, and Krishna, the Lord. He's uh, Arjuna's guru. And he says, near the end of the book, he says to Arjuna, Arjuna, I reveal these truths to you because you have overcome the carping spirit. Okay. Um, And what are those that, what is he revealing? He's revealing to Arjuna the nature of God. And he said, this will remove from your life all evil. Now, this is a very big prize to win, to have God tell you, here is the nature of God, and you have to overcome the carping spirit to get to that place. So this is a fascinating subject. I've been in a number of classes where we have assignments. Okay, this week we're going to work on overcoming the carping spirit. And it is really not easy. And I, I throw out the gauntlet to you and say, give it a try. And really put your mind to it. These are things to edit from your mind. The carping spirit is saying, is resisting what's happening, isn't it? Um, I don't like that. She's not a nice person. Um, this is a stupid thing to be doing. Criticizing what is. And why is that so very important? Because, as we were hearing yesterday, God is in everything. God is in everyone. And also, God is coming to us through every experience. Um, Master said, once, and I think I've said this here a number of times, but I say it to myself a lot, once you set foot on this path, not one thing comes to you by accident. It comes when you're ready to receive it. So God, and especially for the, for the disciple, God is working on you and telling you how to change and how to grow. Jotish yesterday used the example of the, uh, the student who's complaining about his lesson um, or that he shouldn't have to learn it. It's like, this is exactly what you need to know. And Ananda Moima Ma put it in a really, really beautiful way. This is what she said. <clears throat> in whatever circumstances you're placed, tell yourself, it is all right. This is necessary for me. It is God's way of drawing me to his feet. So let me be content. I'm going to read this again, but I want to first say something because I'm speaking to a group of Westerners, primarily Americans. And the American consciousness, a little bit, if you're not a really totally, you know, the devotion aspect doesn't overweigh it. The American consciousness goes, well, wait a minute. I can change my circumstances, and I should change my circumstances. And that was a quality that Master loved in, Amer- in Americans, that we just said, we can do, we can do whatever we don't like things the way they are, we'll change it and we'll make them better. And that is a great quality. And at the same time, there are things that do not respond, things that do not change, loss of, some, loss of a loved one, illness. They, don't, they aren't fixable in the way that you would like to fix it with the American go get them spirit. So I'm going to read this again now. In whatever circumstances you're placed... Tell yourself, it is all right. This is necessary for me. It is God's 
way of drawing me to his feet. So let me be content. In the autobiography of a yogi, um, the grandson of Lahiri Mahashai says, I, I've always, I don't know why this part of the book always intri- intrigues me. He says, in the scriptures, like the Mahabharata, even in the Bible as well, in any scripture, you'll find what are called not points, K-N-O-T, not points, things that kind of hang you up. They don't make logical sense. And I won't go into that too much, but the Mahabharata looks on the surface like it's a, a war story, the good guys against the bad guys, but there are little stories in there that don't make sense in that way. And that is because when you unravel that knot, you find that it's not a war story. It's a story of our own inner consciousness, the good against the bad, and that we have to see it in a different way. But if we didn't look at those knot points, we wouldn't know that. Well, the same is true in our lives, isn't it? We have those knot points. Why is this happening? Why can't I change? Why is this person, why is this working out this way? I just can't, I can't get a handle on it. And just as with the knot points in the scriptures, we have to go deeper inside and we have to say, all right, this has come for some deep reason. It's a knot point for me because it is probably the most important thing I need to learn in this lifetime. And it's not easy for me, but I have to go inside and I have to relax with that and I have to accept that. And if we do that, we often find a flowing and changing answer. Um, I'd like to end this talk by just saying, Jyotish said yesterday we have good news and bad news. Well, we have good news and bad news. The bad news is this life is not designed for your personal pleasure. (laughs) Sorry about that. But the good news is this life is designed for our liberation. So what I'd like to do now, we have a little extra time, and I thought we could do a few exercises to help us lift our consciousness. Um, Hopefully, here at Spiritual Renewal Week, you're in a pretty uplifted consciousness, but you might not always be. And so maybe you can remember some of these exercises. We're going to do a few of the double breathing. We're going to do, these are, so this, these are Yogananda's energization exercises. We're going to do an affirmation of of Yogananda's, and we're going to do a uh, meditation of Yogananda. And as we do it, try to feel Yogananda was holy and 100% positive, upward-flowing energy. And try to feel that energy filling you and directing all your energy upward. So let's please stand and draw your hands together. And we're going to just, again, focus on yourself, focus on your center, focus on Yogananda's power. And let's do 
uh, five of the uh, deep breathing exercises. Double breath. (sighs) Fill yourself with positive energy. And now sit down. And we're going to do one of Yogananda's most wonderful affirmations, the affirmation for psychological success. We'll do it um, twice. First we'll do it aloud, and then we'll do it at the point between the eyebrows. So repeat after me first aloud. I am brave. I am strong. Perfume of success thoughts blows in me, blows in me. I am cool, I am calm. I am sweet, I am kind. I am love and sympathy. I am charming and magnetic. I am pleased with all. I wipe away all tears and fears. I have no enemy. I am the friend of all. I have no habits. In eating, thinking, behaving. I am free. I am free. I command the O attention. To come and practice concentration concentration. on things I do, on on works I do, do. I can do everything everything. when so I think, when so I think, think. in church or temple, in In prayer mood, mood. my vagrant thoughts against me stood. And held my mind from reaching thee. And held my mind from reaching thee. Teach me to own again. Teach me to own again. Oh, own again. Oh, my matter sold mind and brain. That I may give them to thee. In prayer and ecstasy. In meditation and reverie, reverie. I will worship thee. thee. In meditation and seclusion, seclusion. I will feel thine energy energy. flowing through my hands in activity, activity. lest in sloth I lose thee. I I will find thee in activity. Now focus your mind at the point between the eyebrows and repeat it after me silently. I am brave, I am strong. Perfume of success thoughts blows in me, blows in me. I am cool, I am calm. I am sweet, I am kind. I am love and sympathy. I am charming and magnetic. I am pleased with all.
I wipe away all tears and fears. I have no enemy. I am the friend of all. I have no habits. In eating, thinking, behaving, I am free. I am free. I command the O attention to come and practice concentration on things I do, on works I do. I can do everything when so I think, when so I think. In church or temple, in prayer mood, my vagrant thoughts against me stood and held my mind from reaching thee and held my mind from reaching thee. Teach me to own again, O own again, my matter-souled mind and brain, that I may give them to thee in prayer and ecstasy, in meditation and reverie. I will worship thee in meditation and seclusion, I will feel thine energy flowing through my hands in activity, lest in sloth I lose thee. I will find thee in activity. And let's hold on to the feeling of power in that affirmation. Bring your mind to the point between the eyebrows. Watch the breath flowing in and out at the spiritual eye. Imagine the breath comes in with the inhalation at the spiritual eye and goes out at the spiritual eye. And now hold your mind Still at the point between the eyebrows, I'm going to read these words of masters. During meditation, the yogi feels the power of concentration in the will center at the point between the eyebrows and also experiences a feeling of complete peace throughout his body. When he wants to scour from the brain cells the seeds of past failure or sickness, He must direct that peace and concentration power to be felt in the entire brain. In this way, the brain cells become impregnated with peace and power, and their hereditary chemical and psychological composition is altered. So take that sense of peace and concentration that you're feeling in your body and at the point between the eyebrows, And feel that in the entire brain. Feel your whole brain and mind being uplifted and transformed. And finally, I'd like to just close with a little visualization 
I've been doing it on our land, but you can also do it in the community or the country that you're from. Let's imagine standing around us are our five masters. They are ten stories high, or twenty stories high, as high as you can imagine. Their height reminds us of their power. And their vibrations are flowing down on all of us, permeating this land, blessing all the people, the plants, the animals. The new temple site is being infused by the masters with their power. And that power... And that light is going beyond the boundaries of Ananda, creating a strong energy of harmony surrounding this community on the ridge, only goodness around us. And that harmony, that power of the masters is flowing out around the world And it's not losing in strength, it's gaining in strength as it goes, spreading around the globe, touching the hearts of people with a touch of God's presence, reminding them where their true happiness lies within their own selves. Om. Peace. Amen. I was thinking when we heard, unfortunately, that Padma was unwell, I was thinking now we needed to give the extended cut version of our talks. (laughs) So here it is. Anandi did well in her part, so let's give her a clap. (laughs) I was thinking yesterday when Jyotish was giving us that wonderful image when he said, you know, we can look behind us here and, or you can look forward and see the lake behind us and see it as separate. But in reality, of course, it isn't. It's it's not there separate from who we are. It's one and the same as who we are. And perhaps each one of us, in our own way, in, a, in an experience that we may have had, perhaps just a touch or a glimpse of the experience, have been able to step back from the immediacy of what's going on in life and be able to, in that stepping back, have a more complete perspective of what life is and also what our part is doing in that life. Um, I don't know if you've had the chance, but Kent Williams has uh, sent a drone over all of Ananda Village's property and then filmed it from that drone and posted it. And it's quite amazing. You know, we all think, ah, I know this land inch by inch. But seeing that drone version where it's up there, I couldn't believe how sometimes it looked very different than what I thought it was after living here so many years. And it's like that, that we can get just caught in the immediacy of 
this is what's happening. These are the things that are good and bad in my life. But I like, you know, yesterday, Davey quoted from Dr. Albert Einstein. I'd also like to quote from another doctor, Dr. Seuss, <laughs> who wasn't a doctor. And Seuss was his middle name. But um, it's interesting as a side note that uh, for those that don't know who Dr. Seuss is, which is perhaps remarkable, um, <laughs> that he was a famous American author that wrote children's books. One of the most famous one was Cat in the Hat, but playful, fanciful stories. And someone mentioned to him, I think his publisher, that it would be good if he could write books that really could be read by everyone, including children, of course, but even adults that maybe weren't that literate. And so this friend of his came up with 300 words that were the basic words that everything else could be built on. And he challenged Dr. Zeus to write a book just with those 300 words. Now, obviously, many of those words were used multiple times because they're, they're lengthy stories, not lengthy, lengthy stories. But, and so the, the book that he wrote, I think it was Cat in the Hat, he used only 256 words. Pretty amazing, eh? But his quote that I'd like to give you is that he said that sometimes questions are complicated and sometimes answers are simple. From our yogic perspective, we can say this in a different way, and more meaningful perhaps, that the conscious mind tends to separate and see the problems. The superconscious mind tends to see the solutions and sees the unity behind everything that's separate and really lives in that experience. But just like seeing that drone give us an impression of uh, this property different than just walking through it, there are times when it's vital to be able to pull back from that immediacy. It's not that we're not in the moment, but we're just not caught in that moment. And we need to do this if we're going to have just a healthy life in and of itself, and much more important, a deeply spiritual life. Because we can get trapped so easily by saying, this is real for me, or this is too real for me. And Anandi gave numerous examples of that. And the carping spirit tends to come into play when we're caught in that little confinement of our problems, of the conscious approach that this is happening to me. But I remember one time when I was um, in my early 20s, before I moved here, I lived on my oldest brother's farm up in Quebec. And uh, it was a back-to-the-land experience, no electricity, no running water, and we had about an acre of garden that we tended to, and we had a family cow. And our nearest neighbor was about four or five miles away, and he was a German immigrant that had built a ski resort by himself. Uh, there were rolling hills that were really perfect for skiing, so he cleared some slopes, built a ski lodge by himself, and then he needed help on weekends when I was living in my brother's farm, so I went there and helped him with the T-bar uh, thing that people were taking up the slopes, and then he allowed me to ski for free. And I'd never downhill skied. I'd done a lot of cross-country skiing and snowshoeing, so it was a new experience, and I started off slowly but quickly found that I could do more. And I really got into the rush of it. And I think that's what a lot of people feel. There's a grace also that happens in downhill skiing, but there's that rush. 
And I remember picking up on the Rushmore. And I'd been meditating for a number of years, so I understood things like centeredness and calmness. But um, so I was coming down this hill one time at a rapid pace. And then I crouched down to get into that aerodynamic real rush of space. And then suddenly it was like a time motion uh, change. I realized that my, my ski boat had disengaged from the binding. But it was like... It was this time where I observed that. I thought to myself, hmm, <laughs> this is going to be interesting. I mean, literally, I, I can still remember the feeling of thinking that thought. And yet, I doubt it was more than a second that really transpired in the experience. And like, um, like Davy in her fall, for those that weren't here, Davy had a dramatic, a miracle fall on Saturday off the stage at the Living Wisdom Center. And she explained that she rolled into it when she fell. Well, obviously, I had that thought through. I'm going to roll. And did I roll? But you know, you've got these lengthy skis to roll with. And so I went, chunk, 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 chunk. <laughs> and I thought, wow, I'm alive. But that sense of separating the time and space element gives us the real experience of something beyond the confines of this limited world. It really is what we have in meditation, isn't it? And in sleep as well. We're timeless. Maybe sometimes that time is too much time and sometimes it's less time. But if we go into the depth of meditation, we are timeless. And the complications that tend to be there suddenly become simplified. We see what it is that we're trying to do. Where are we going with this? Paramahansa Yogananda said that we should choose to live our life willingly, feelingly, intelligently, and devotionally. Nice summary, isn't it? But the idea of willingly being willing to engage in life, to really say yes to life, as Swami Kriyananda often expressed and emphasized, that when we say yes to life, we're opening up to a flow of energy much greater than our own limitations. And it's really what the essence of the energization exercises is really about. I think we all feel the tremendous potency of being recharged through the energization exercises. But my sense is that's secondary. That's, you know, way behind the primary thing that's really happening. And that primary thing in energization is that we start more and more to identify that we are that cosmic energy. That we let go of the restrictions, the identifications that are less than that, and we come to the direct experience that we have that energy. And that happens because of our willingness, of willing to open up to that flow of energy, of willing to see life full of the greatest possibilities, you know, and to really know that those possibilities can go a lot of different ways. And we really have that choice, moment by moment, time and time again, to know that we can move to the experience of fulfillment. It may not be fulfillment we arrive at, we can always choose to move towards fulfillment. Isn't that interesting? Simple separation between feeling that you have to be at the fulfillment stage, which can produce 
as uh, a non-dimension. A fair amount of guilt at times. But if we always reset to moving in that direction, it can be the tiniest increment, as you said. It could be that two-minute meditation. But it is in that increment of the direction that empowers us right there. And it gives us the touch of fulfillment, even if we don't have the fullness of fulfillment. That seems a strange concept, the fullness of fulfillment. Uh, But we're touching into that experience. And so that willingness of saying yes to life, of operating always with, how do I move forward? How do I have the direction that's giving me a sense that's supporting what I really want in life? And then choosing to live life feelingly. Interesting that Yogananda would emphasize that. You know, in the Yoga Sutras, in the second sutra, the Sanskrit is yogas chitta vritti nirod, which means in English, yoga is the neutralization of the vortices or the whirlpools of feeling. But it does not say yoga is the neutralization of feelings. It's a very important distinction. Feeling is an incredibly important and potent part of how we live our lives more fully. That it is with the heart's openness with feeling that we engage in the world around us. Where we can have the the emphasis of care, the emphasis of compassion with those around us and for ourselves, which is important as well. But that feeling is there to allow God's touch to open us up, to appreciate His grace is beyond us. It's in the world around us. And in that feeling way, we nurture more of the heart in the engagement of the world around us. And that's important because we have to come at it with a sense of opening beyond our boundaries. One of the secrets of happiness, you know, from Swamiji's little books, The Secrets of Happiness, he says that the secret of happiness is respecting other people's realities for what they are. Again, he does not say taking those realities as the reality. He's simply saying respecting that other people have their version of reality that's true to them at this point in their lives. And so it's real to them. And in feeling, we can appreciate that. Swamiji, in his commentaries on the Yoga Sutras, and he talks about, there's a section on the obstacles uh, to the yogi to find fulfillment. And at one point, Swami, in his interpretations uh, of these points, he actually said that one of them is, and there are things to overcome, like dullness, disease, and, and things like that. And, and he explained one, overcoming the lack of attachment to good things. That's pretty puzzling. You know, and it's that word attachment that snags us, of course. But really what he's saying, it's overcoming the tendency to back off of feeling your experience in life as a touch of grace. Isn't that a nice way to, to understand that? It's opening up to that touch of grace, feeling that touch of God's presence in our lives. And then he says, 
choose to live your life intelligently. Now, that doesn't mean we have to have IQs that are super high. Again, if you think about it less as a static position for us and more directional, each one of us can open up to that cosmic intelligence and let it reverberate in our consciousness. That we're choosing the right things. We're opening up to wisdom. We're able to, to see, to act, and to move forward with what is right in our lives. You know that prayer of Yogananda's, may I reason, may I will, may I act, but guide thou my reason, my will, and my activity to the right path in everything. That captures that idea of that we're reasoning with intelligence. We're choosing to do the things that really work for us to allow us to expand our awareness. You know, in, in superconsciousness, we're less concerned about the intelligence quota, the IQ, and more about the flow of wisdom. That wisdom itself is an intuitive perception at its deepest and highest level. Intuitive perception. And I think this is what Master, what Yogananda was emphasizing in living your life intelligently, to tune in, to embrace that intuitive perception of life itself and the essence of life. And then devotionally, course has to be a part of what's happening and why that's important and others will talk on this topic in some of these later classes this week but to live your life devotionally means to draw God's presence more completely into your experience and we know that the heart as we've been uh, taught the heart chakra the heart energy center is a dividing point between the feeling energy going down with emotions into the lower chakras and ego attachment and involvement compared to that aspiration, that lifting up with devotion, which allows the energy to expand and bring us to that reality of who we are. And so that heart energy being drawn up to the kudasta, the spiritual eye, that we're engaged in that direction of devotion. And whatever we do outwardly with devotion, more has to do with your karma than the specifics of what should happen for you. You know, some of us deeply enjoy chanting. I remember I was so caught by chanting when I first visited here that I stayed for a number of months and then I went back to Canada and I started a meditation group for Ananda. It was 1978, and it was at the time when the meditation group, part of Ananda, the outreach, was starting to happen. And so I started a group. No one came the first time to the group meeting, but people started to come. And then what happened was I started to teach classes. I hadn't taken any formal training. The yoga teacher training courses started a couple years later, uh, or the year after, 1979, under Prakash. But... Uh, but I started teaching classes. A number of us that had spiritually-minded focuses in our lives started what we call the New, <clears throat> a new Age Community Center, because the word New Age was more prevalent at that time. 
and it gave a lot of different groups the chance to offer different classes, and Ananda was there giving classes. But then once a month, I would have kirtans at my home without instrumentation. Because <laughs> I loved chanting so much, it became so much a part of what my spiritual journey was all about. That Certainly I fumbled around with some of the chants, but I could keep the melodies fairly close on some of them. And every once in a while we'd listen to the rare two recordings of Swami chanting, or there were some uh, chanting that he would do at classes like Spiritual Renewal Week that I'd get a hold of and we'd chant with that. But that sense of that chanting for me was very real. For other people, chanting may be a different kind of tool, maybe still productive, positive, meaningful, magnetic. But it will be at different levels for different people, all the tools of devotion. Devotion itself, though, is something all of us should live by, as Yogananda said. He also said an interesting quote. He said that one should make up one's mind to perform all pleasant duties with one's full heart and to perform all unpleasant duties with deep attention. Isn't that amazing? Because as Anandi said, there's a real inclination to back off of things that don't work for us. Um, the unpleasantries of life. Uh, let's not go there. Let's not give that energy because this is what I really want in life. But it's only because of the peculiar, the peculiar nature of your karma and your likes and dislikes that force us to even think that there are unpleasant duties. There are just duties. And duties, the word duty in our vocabulary these days has sort of an imposition of I should, I have to, I must. But duty is more seen from another perspective is the ennobling acts of us being in the world. The ennobling acts of being in the world. A very different connotation there. So we don't see duty as being uh, heavy. I mean, we, see, we hear the word duty-bound and we feel, yeah, I guess I should do this. I really should do this. They told me I should do this. Um, but if we change it to an ennobling act to feel that flow of movement, of energy, and consciousness, then we can move mountains, even when it isn't, quote, on the pleasant side of things. But isn't that amazing that we, we can always see that we've got a choice? You know, back in the early 1980s, and I'm going to ask Narani and Nitai to correct me on some of the details, that the grade school children put out a coloring book. It was a little booklet, actually. And I think it was a fundraiser. But the title of the coloring book was From Bummers to Blessings. <laughs> and I still have my copy somewhere uh, in a box. But, uh, and I think, again, this is where I'm not sure of the details. I think it was like nine and ten-year-olds um, that did this. So keep that in mind as I tell you about this. So on the left-hand page was, remember, it was a coloring book was the bummer. So there was a, 
a line drawing that you could color in, and then it had a descriptive of what that bummer was. And then the right page was a line drawing and a descriptive of what the blessing from that bummer would be. Um, And the one example I'll share with you was the bummer was this child, this boy, uh, that the bag of groceries that he was carrying home from the grocery store had split at the bottom and all the groceries had tumbled down onto the pavement, including the eggs that, you know, broke and went on the pavement. So that was the bummer. Now remember, these are nine and ten-year-olds. So take a moment. Don't tell me. This is, I'm just mentally going to ask you. Ask. Just mentally picture what a blessing would be for you, and don't yell at me with it. Um, but just take a moment and feel. Close your eyes and tune into, okay, if I was a ten-year-old child and this happened to me, what would be a blessing in this circumstance? Well, the one that they put in the coloring book was the child talking to the mother and saying, Guess what, Mom? When the eggs broke on the hot pavement, I learned how to fry eggs. (laughs) We always have that ability to choose. Again, not necessarily the perfect outcome. And again, that ties us up. That entangles us, thinking that we need to have the perfect outcome. What we need to do is open up to that there's a blessing inherent always. And how do we simply open up to it? And part of that is also being an instrument to bless others. That the more that we can see ourselves less isolated, as I said before, respecting other people's realities for what they see them as, that we nurture that connection with people that won't necessarily be in our natural habitat. You know, they're not people that we would necessarily spend time with. But we probably bump into millions of those people in our lifetime. You know, some of them have rough edges. Some of them are seemingly polar opposite to spiritual values. But there's always that possibility that who you are being tuned in, can convey beyond any words can, and perhaps even beyond any actions can, something that resonates with the soul and the other person. You know, we use the term soul call, that we allow ourselves to nurture that soul call in the world around us. What others will do with that, that's up to them. That's where we need to have Uh, dispassion and non-attachment. And that's also where we come into discrimination. I mean, just recently, the reading from the Bible for Sunday service was, cast ye not pearls before swine. So we need to respect that we're not going to, you know, say to the person next to us, you know, by the way, there are five avatars that would really help you. And I can teach you to meditate. Well, there may be a slim chance that might actually happen, and don't preclude it won't. But you want to rather open up more with vibration and less the specifics. I mean, remember, 
to counter this, that Yogananda is a boy, the boy Mukunda. This is in, in that book that uh, Davy showed yesterday, one of the new publications from Crystal Clarity Publishers, uh, The Stories of Yogananda's Youth, that um, he said to a boy in his classroom, I'm your, or wrote a note, I'm your guru. <laughs> well, try that. <laughs> it may not work. But, but isn't it true we can opt, open up to that vibration and share that vibration with people? Just being in a situation where you are who you are, that ability to share becomes much more a sense of, it's not you. It really is the divine flowing through you. What I know for me, and I've mentioned this before and shared this before, that for me, along with chanting when I first came to Nanda, that the healing prayers were just such a real connection for me and continue to be that way. That I spent pretty much an hour every week on Saturdays doing healing prayers for people. I got my names from the Ananda Healing Prayer Ministry and certainly focused on them for an extended period of time. But then just brought to mind all the others that I knew in my life that I could share this blessing with. And again, it's, it's taking that ability to choose what you're doing with your energy and your consciousness and to share it with others in this way. Again, there's no way, for the most part, you're ever going to find out what the result of your prayers was, was for this person or that person. And that's actually a benefit to know that your position in this, your role in this, is to be an open instrument of blessings to other people. And when we're able to open up that way, the choice we're making continues to move forward. You know, Davy touched on a little bit of uh, that study, actually it was a number of studies, that talked about people that are in power positions, that it's detrimental to brain, so not just in terms of attitudes, that was there too. But there are actually two different studies by two different disciplines uh, in science. And one was a, uh, a more psychology approach of looking at one's attitudes and how that plays out. The other was actually a neuroscientist looking at what happens with the brain to people that are in power positions. And both saw that deteriorating effect on the physical brain and on the consciousness. They didn't call it consciousness, but on the mind in terms of attitude. And they actually pointed out, which is flawed from our perspective, but interesting from their perspective in science, that those people that they studied that had been entangled in power they did not even recognize their behavior or what was happening. It was like they lost empathy. They lost a sense of cooperation and put their eggs in the basket of controlling other people's lives. And they were saying, not quite, but this was fixed. But from our perspective... As Davy said, she used the word, and 
Peter Van Houten, our resident doctor, Kriyacharya, has often said in classes here at Spiritual New Week, the brain is always malleable, no matter how encrusted it is with something or lacking in patterns in the brain that move towards empathy. There's always the possibility of change. And that's why Be the Change applies to everyone on the planet, not just for us meditating. You know, that we open up to those possibilities. When I got into the teachings of Yogananda and specifically from Swamiji's uh, additions to them, I really tuned in also to the yoga asanas, the yoga postures. And I don't do that many asanas, but I've been doing asanas every day for over 40 years. And I'd like to just touch on one posture because the postures, in a sense, are like microcosms of the macrocosm of our lives. Not many people pick up on that, but, uh, but it's true. And I'll, I'll show you here. So the one pose I'm going to emphasize here is Bhujangasana, the cobra pose. And it's one of the backward bends. And when we get into Bhujangasana, we're lying on our bellies, on our front down. And the first step is to lengthen the legs and the toes behind us, to feel that we're already lengthening into the experience of energy flow. And then we place our hands in one position or the other uh, at the sides of our, our chest. And then we just lightly lift the head off the floor and feel it extending, opening up so that it's not going to crunch back as we float the head up. We're not trying to just bend it back. We're trying to open up to a flow of energy that's graceful, lifting. And then, depending on the strength of people's backs, ideally using the back muscles only, we then start to raise up. But before that, we make sure that we're grounded in the pelvic area, that we're, in a sense, pressing the pelvic area down to create foundation. And we can help that by gently, firmly squeezing the buttock muscles to help sense that we're firm in that foundation position. So we're solid. We've got something to move from. And then leaving the pelvic area on the floor and the navel on the floor with those back muscles, if we have them, we can gracefully lift up. And then we can use the hands or arms, depending on the position, to support that. The tendency, though, especially for new people learning this pose, as they lift up, they lift their shoulders up. It's very common. And guess what happens when you do that? You just bring a focus of tension into the pose. I mean, there's tension in the pose no matter how you do it. Um, I'm not trying to be naive here or fool you. Um, But the difference is the whole flow of energy suddenly gets obliterated and you're just tuning into the tension in the shoulders. So instead of pushing up and lifting the shoulders, the ideal is to let the shoulders melt down away from the ears and feel the chest, especially the heart chakra, opening up as the head floats up. There's just a sense, there's a grace, there's a flow. And the mental affirmation that Swami suggested for this pose is, I rise joyfully to meet each new opportunity. But you can see the parts of it. They indeed are like a little world, a microcosm, as I said, for how we can deal with the world. 
that we need to, at first, even just to begin with, start off opening, lengthening the legs, as I said in the post, but in our own lives, opening, and then create a foundation, a strength, a stability, a sense of being grounded that's really solid for each one of us. And then to feel we're opening up to the flow that isn't just a straight line, but a sense of grace that floats and lifts us up and feeling that heart. So you can feel this. This is, in essence, the spiritual journey. We, From that groundedness, we offer the openness of the heart up to the spiritual eye. I rise joyfully to meet each new opportunity. And it's a real experience that we have. So I'd like to end, now that I've done my extended cut version of this talk, again, much like Anandi, but slightly different, of an experience. So I want you to close your eyes, sit upright, use your posture, just as I explained in the Cobra pose, use the posture as a way to start opening up to the possibilities. But feel relaxed, shoulders relaxed, chest open, spine extended. And just breathe diaphragmatically. So abdominal breathing. As you inhale through the two nostrils smoothly, evenly, feel that gentle extension of the abdomen outward. And as you exhale, gently bring the abdomen back in as the exhalation smoothly moves through and out through the nostrils. And be with it completely. Just do a number of repetitions. This breathing, in and of itself, without any other meditation technique, can give us that distance that I spoke of in the beginning, of backing off the immediacy of life. It changes drastically your potential of being able to make the right choices, of becoming centered and grounded, and then open. Then continue with your eyes closed. And I want to just say out loud one of the prayers from the Festival of Light, but you can just remain silent and tune into it mentally. This is a very deeply touching part of the Festival of Light ceremony. Lord, we offer up the little light that is in us into thy blazing light of infinity. Grant us the grace to know thee and make us ever increasingly pure channels of thy love to all. 